All right, Ephesians chapter 3. By the way, Hank the Tank is healthy, happy, and should be coming home this morning. So grandson is here, excited, praise the Lord, looking forward to getting to spend more time with him. All right, we're going to actually start in Mark chapter 8. So these verses will come up on the screen, but if you want to follow, you can flip to Mark 8, keep your place in Ephesians 3. Let's get some context to what we have going on, okay? Mark chapter 8, here's what the Bible says. Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me just tell you about Caesarea Philippi. Here's what you need to understand about Philippi. It is the place that Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to, but it is a place of confusion. It's a place where people went to worship anything they wanted to worship. It was a place that was known for its temples, and there were five main gigantic temples And so it was sort of you pick your flavor, you could go there, you could worship how you wanted, who you wanted, whatever you wanted, and there was all sorts of debauchery going on there. Um, Now, this was a place that good Jewish boys would have certainly heard about and would have certainly known about, but not a place they would go because they know what's there, and they know that it is... uh, basically an open-air market of sexuality. Jesus takes them there. And and the only way to get there is to walk along a, a path, and they knew where they were going. So he takes them there, and here's what the Bible goes on to say. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now, there's no doubt a pause here, I'm sure. But when everyone realizes that no one really knows what to do, of course, Peter's going to step in and answer and say, you are the Christ The word Christ simply is the word Messiah. So Peter affirms, well, you're God. You're the Messiah. You're the one sent from God. And then the Bible says that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Tell no one about him. Why would Jesus say, tell no one about me? Why did Jesus take them to this place to ask them this question? What exactly is Jesus doing? Think about this now. Tell no one about me. Well, tell no one that you've seen me walk on water. Tell no one that you've seen me feed 5,000, and so did the 5,000 and their wives and their kids who all experience that. Tell no one that you've seen me touch a leper and heal a leper. Why not shout to the masses? 
why not, why would you stand in such a dark place in time and not declare from the rooftops? Especially in a place filled with people who are searching for meaning and purpose and who continually try to fill themselves only to find themselves empty again. But don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Why? That's my question. Maybe some of you think, well, because the time is not right. Well, that sounds good, but it's dumb. Like I said, he's already fed 5,000 people. This isn't a secret. He's already done lots of things. It's not a big secret. Why not tell? He takes them to a place of confusion to expose their confusion. The reason that he tells them not to tell is because he knows what they would say if they did tell someone. To which you say, well, now, wait a minute. Didn't Peter, didn't they answer the question correctly? Peter said, you're the Christ. Well, keep reading verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So now we can see his purpose in what he's saying. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why is Peter rebuking him? Because Jesus just exposed their confusion, and the confusion now comes to light. And so Peter is like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. So as Peter begins to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, so he turns from Peter to the disciples, and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, you're thinking about your life. You're thinking about your security. You're thinking about what you want. You are confused. If you were to tell someone about God, what you would say would be incorrect. Because you think that I've come for your comfort or for your hopes or for your dreams. But those are the things of man, not the things of God. Try to remember. I, honestly, that's the first time I've seen Caleb's video was with you. I can't tell you how many things he said that are in this message this morning. There's a bunch. And here's the first one. If you have your listening guide, knowing what I am 
is not the same as knowing who I am. So basically what Jesus is saying is knowing what I am is not the same as knowing who I am. You see, they knew what Jesus was. They knew that he was the Christ. But they didn't know the heart of God. They didn't know who he really is. See, they can say the title, you're Jesus, the Messiah. But they don't understand what that means. They don't understand the scope of that statement. So he says, he takes them to a place of confusion. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Don't tell anyone that. Four verses later, we skip down to 33. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, So now he's got the crowd and the disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, it's so clear what Jesus is doing here, isn't it? For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Then he goes on about the things that we're chasing or the things that we're pursuing. He says, well, what would it profit a man if he gains a whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. See, first, Jesus says, what, what good would it do if you gained the whole world? What good would it do if you gained all the things you're pursuing? If, if I did the things you think I'm going to do, the things you want me to do, what good would it really do? It might temporarily make your life a little easier or better, but it's not going to solve your real problem. Then he goes on, he transitions to being embarrassed by his words. Why would someone be embarrassed by his words? Why would, would we ever be embarrassed of his words? Why? Why would that happen? It happens like this. Someone says something like, I love Jesus because he's always there for me. Sounds good. Then something happens that you don't understand, that you don't think is fair, that you think ought not to happen. Or something that you think should happen doesn't happen. And in your bewilderment, frustration, and disappointment, the only thing you can conclude is that, you know, following this Jesus just doesn't work. I tried that. 
It didn't work. I tried following Jesus, but things didn't get better. They got worse. I asked Jesus to fix this, but he didn't fix this. I asked Jesus to help me with this, but he didn't help me with this. So my conclusion is, he doesn't work. Essentially, I'm ashamed of him and his words. So then what happens? So then Jesus carries on with his disciples and he starts continuing on his journey towards Jerusalem. They're processing this teaching. They're processing what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. And then eventually they get to Jerusalem and what happens? They're thinking, what do you mean? Take up my cross, lose my life and find it. What, what, what? Suffer, rise again in three days. What do you mean? They get to Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters the city, the crowds are swarming and screaming and cheering and chanting. And all their palm branches that they brought for the festival so that they have a, a makeshift place to sleep because there's the, the city is swollen to its max capacity. And all the crowds take the branches of palm trees and they went out crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Son of David, blessed are you. Hosanna, do you know what that means? It means save now. They're screaming, save now, save now. Kingdom of David, son of David, save now, save now. What, what are they saying? Come into the city and save us now. Son of David, why are they saying son of David? Because the last time they were free from oppression, David was on the throne. The last time they were an autonomous people, prospering, healthy, wealthy, safe. David was on the throne. Save us now. And by save us, they mean a different kind of save. They mean save us from this Roman oppression. Save us from our circumstances. Make our lives better now. That's what they're saying. Fix our problems now. And Jesus, the Bible says, looks over the city as they're cheering and chanting. And he weeps. He weeps. Because he sees a people who are calling him all the right names, aren't they? They got the title down pat. But he weeps because they don't have a shepherd. Do you know what sheep are that don't have a shepherd? They're lost. And he weeps. 
Knowing what he is is a whole lot different than knowing who he is. See, he knows that in a few days, they're going to be so disappointed. The same people cheering are going to be so disappointed that they're going to vote for a criminal to be released so that he is treacherously murdered. And why are they going to do that? Because he didn't come to make their life easier. That's why. We still chant the same thing today, don't we? It's all over the place. Why are you here this morning? Why did you wake up and come to church this morning? Is there a part of you that thinks, if you just give God an hour and a half of your week, he'll bless you. He'll make your life a little bit better. He'll solve a few of your problems. He'll smooth out a few of your bumps. Is there a part of you that thinks that? See, by the time we get to the book of Ephesians, 30 years has passed since the crucifixion, give or take a few. And Paul is writing to a group of believers in this place, Ephesus. he's still trying to carry on this message that Jesus was teaching his disciples. Because no matter what, wherever there are people, there will be worship, and wherever there's worship, there will be confusion. And there will, there will be lots of false ideas and false understandings because people are inherently fixated on their self. And so what we've said is that the book of Ephesians is like God flinging the window of the gospel open and revealing to us a new reality. It's not new, but it's new to us. This new reality. The real, true reality. That we were once doomed in this house of mirrors where all we could see is ourselves and others. But now we can look out through the gospel and a mystery is revealed. So let's go to Ephesians 3 and watch this unfold. So what has Paul just done at the, through the first two chapters at the end of chapter 2? He sort of ended chapter 2 with that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, talking about the family of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. 
So this incredible statement about what's actually happening through the gospel and the people of God, that we're being joined together, growing into a holy temple. The holy of holies, remember from last week. Yes. Then we get to chapter 3. For this reason, because of this reality, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Wait, what? What do you mean? Prisoner of Christ Jesus, last week I I walked you through the book of Acts and showed you how he ended up in prison. He's a prisoner of Rome. And the reason he's a prisoner is because he's hanging around Gentiles and got falsely accused of doing something that he didn't do. But that's not how Paul sees it. And you say, well, why does Paul say that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Well, of course it's because Paul believes that Jesus is sovereign. And so he, he understands that whatever is going on in his life had to pass through the sovereignty of God. So, so God must be okay with that. He must have allowed that. Well, that's part of it. Yes. I mean, theologically, that's the answer. But practically, practically, Paul had placed himself at the disposal of Jesus, which just means that he received Jesus as Lord. Lord. So he's at the disposal of Jesus because Jesus is his Lord. So that means Jesus can use him in any way Jesus wants, right? Pretty sure Caleb said that. So long before he became Rome's prisoner, he was Jesus' prisoner. That's why. There's a practical implication that plays out in a person's life when they utterly and completely surrender their lives to Jesus. And the first implication of that is wherever I go and whatever I do, it's not up to me. Whatever happens to me is not up to me. I'm no longer in control of my life. How do I know that? Because I have a Lord. I don't have. He's not my friend. He's not my helper. He's not my co-pilot. He's not my counselor. He's not my interpreter. He's my Lord. See, he functions in lots of ways in my life, but preeminently and primarily, he's Lord. That's a game changer. That explains why there's so many people running around professing to know God. But let's face it. You're the one driving your life. You know it. Everyone around you knows it. It's obvious. He's not your Lord. You got this thing mixed up. You're waving palm branches and you're singing songs to him and you're saying things about him, but you don't know him. And how do we know? 
We know when trouble comes. When trouble comes, the truth about you is revealed. See, our greatest obstacle to faithfulness is not our flesh. But believe it or not, it's our lack of understanding to the degree to which we're loved. It's not what you would naturally think. Because living a life taken captive by Jesus is not done by grit. It's not done by, by effort. It's not done through discipline. It's not, that's not how it's done. You can't just say this morning, I want to be like Paul. I'm going to surrender my life to God. You can't do that. You cannot do that. You will fail miserably. Do you think you have the strength and the, uh, the, the, the power and discipline in your flesh to do that? No chance. So how does a person do that? They understand how they're loved. That's how you live like Paul lived. What leads a person to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus no matter the cost? He tells us. It's grace. That's what he's going to teach us this morning. It's grace. It's being a, 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 a steward. Look, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. The stewardship, what does that mean? A steward, that's someone who cares for something that belongs to someone else. That's what a steward is. So the grace that God has shown you in your life is for you to be a good steward of, meaning pass it on to someone else. It's not a steward doesn't possess or keep for their own, do they? No. He didn't say an owner. He said a steward. Those are two different things. So the steward cares for something that's gonna, that belongs to someone else. They nurture something for a season, for a time. Of all that God has made us a steward of is for us to care for that and to pass it on to others. That's what it's for. It's not for us to keep. So you think about who Paul became because of grace is who we will also become because of grace. See, don't put Paul in some special category. That's a, that's a mistake. There'll be so many people who are disillusioned and disappointed and, and just wrongly informed about God because they put the people in the Bible in wrong categories. Yes, Paul is a unique individual with a unique calling upon his life. But so is every single saved person in this room. So you're not Paul, 
but you serve the same God who works the same way. So don't just, you you got to be careful of how your mind tries to fool you. Notice verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See this new mystery. We talked about this last week, that God doesn't make Gentiles into Jews. He makes Gentiles and Jews into new creations. That's important to understand. And so this mystery. Now now think this through with me for a second. Mystery. What is a mystery? What Paul is, is he's using the word mystery that means something that is previously unknown. To which you say, well, now that was rocket science. No, no. Because here's what we think today when we hear the word mystery. When we hear mystery... We think something mysterious, something, you know, this, this thing that's dark and mysterious. And no, this is simply something not new being revealed. Something not new being revealed. Revealed. It's always been there. We just didn't know about it. Now we do. It's like the light came on and now we can see it. It didn't just appear. It's always been there. We just couldn't see it. Now we can. Verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's the mystery summed up. Anyone can be in Christ and Christ will be in them. Anyone. Anyone. Caleb said that too. Like, just saying. Bro, you're all... Right here with me. I don't know what happened. I'm going one, two, three times. You said something straight out of my message. See, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, no one chanted, forgive my sin, cleanse my heart. Change my affections. No one chanted that. No one chants that. We chant save us now, fix our problems, make life smoother. See, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Now, if you think about it, if 
When Jesus was walking into Jerusalem and everyone was chanting and carrying on. In fact, really the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? All the ideas in the disciples' mind about what Jesus was there to do, all the ideas in the crowd that's cheering, save us now. Don't you understand that they believed in their heart that they deserved all of those things or they never would have shouted them? The expectation that God would do that for them is based on their belief that they deserved them. In other words, the one thing they were negating beyond everything else is grace. Grace is receiving what we have no entitlement to. It's God's riches at Christ's expense, isn't it? Yes. Verse 7 of, the, of this gospel, I was made a minister. That, that's just the word servant. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see that? Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose. The eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. Is that new? Or has that always been there? His purpose has always been there, but we didn't know it. It's not new, it's just revealed. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How much we're loved. We're loved so much, how much, that we have boldness and we have access to him. So think about this, throughout the entire Bible, what has always and consistently worked to grow faith in the church and advance the spread of the gospel always suffering and persecution and when you read the entire bible in every single area of the bible what is always always and consistently worked to grow apathy in the church and hinder the spread of the gospel Prosperity and ease. God's purpose for you is not for you to be healthy and happy. Praise God. He loves you more than that. God's purpose for you is to be faithful and fruitful. Here's the thing that God says to our hearts that want him to fix our problems. 
one believes God's sovereign when life is good. But when it's hard, we start wondering. We start doubting. We start battling. We start trying to sort out, am I being punished for this? Did I do something wrong? Did God miss this? Maybe even you get to the depths of maybe I'm not even saved. I don't know. All these things start going through our mind. Suddenly God becomes this completely different person who plays hide and seek with us. The inventor of all communication suddenly can't clearly get the word through. Now you think about it. And we say, God... We, will, will you fix this problem, God? Will you do? And it doesn't mean that God never will, but here's what God is saying ultimately to me and you in our bewilderment and our suffering. What he wants us to know and understand is that although those requests are important to him and they matter to him and he cares about them, if he doesn't answer them, Honestly, it's because it's too small. He has bigger things. Bigger things. He's he's up to bigger things than that. See, this is about God using us for his eternal purpose. Now think this through. Get out of the kiddie pool and walk and swim into the deep end with me. Let the Bible inform your thinking about God. In whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself in, just ask a sequence of questions. Just ask yourself questions like, is God good? And answer it in your heart. Truly, do you know that? And if you don't, stop there and figure that out. Read your Bible until you know for sure God's good. Then ask the question, is God sovereign? And if you don't know that, read your Bible until you figure that out. Ask God to show you. God, am I sovereign? Stop asking him for it. Say, God, forget all those other things. I want you to please show me that you're sovereign. Is he good? Is he sovereign? Will God ever do anything to weaken the faith of his child? Will God ever do anything to weaken the faith of his child? Will God ever do anything that doesn't work out? To advance his cause. Ask those questions. Let the Bible inform you and and teach you to relate to God, not for what he is, but for who he is. Know his heart, know what he's about. I am convinced that people, even people who know God, 
who would say, maybe you're here this morning. This is what you would say. This, it makes me want to cry. The truth is, is that you're, you're just, you're dry. Your relationship with God is, is just feels dead. You're just stuck in a rut. Like you wake up in the morning, maybe you read your Bible, maybe you pray, but like in your heart, the truth is, you didn't come in here this morning saying, man, I am walking with God. I can feel his presence in my life. I, can, I know that he's working in me, and I know him. And, I'm, and, and listen, why? Why is that? Why is it that you, would, you feel dry and distant and, and, and bored? Like there are so many things in your life that are more exciting, be honest, than God. Why? Because you're a grown person playing in the backyard in a kiddie pool. Which is basically, after five minutes, the most boring thing I can think of. You're in a kiddie pool. But let me tell you something. If you're out there bounding in the ocean, body surfing in the waves, amazed by the grandness and the splendor of all that God's doing around you. And listen, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Grow up. He loves you way too much to just roll up and solve your rinky-dink problems. To which you say, well, I'm offended by that. I don't care. Listen, in, 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 up against eternity, it's rinky-dink. Don't you understand? No matter how bad and serious and terrible and hurtful and disastrous and whatever it may seem today, it's for a little tiny dot of time. It's a vapor. For all eternity, you're going to be face-to-face with him. Your wildest dreams will come true every day for a bazillion days. I forgot it. It's a one-shot deal. See, that's what Paul's trying to teach us here. He's, he's in prison. And he's bearing the pressure of his life and being in prison because he knows the pressure is leading to the redemption of others. He's stewarding the grace of God in a prison cell. Don't you see? Look. False hope. Is God wills to keep you from suffering? Or your suffering will end in a short time. That's false hope. It's false hope. It's kiddie pool. It's what it is. True hope is God will bring you through all 
suffering. Your suffering will end with the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what a child of God is guaranteed. You know why? Because you're, if you're a child of God, you're an heir to the promises of God, which means they will not fail you. Which means God's not going to take what's most important and put it on the bottom shelf to appease us in the kiddie pool. He's not going to drain the ocean of his glory so that we can have fun in the kiddie pool. He's going to do whatever it takes to get us to get up and get out and walk over and dive in. And then we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what's in store for us. That's what grace does. Grace enables us to suffer in such a way that others might be brought into grace. Don't you see that? That's why the Bible teaches that when you follow God, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Blessed are you when you suffer, when you persecuted my name. Blessed are you when you when you live your life according to things that the world mocks, blessed are you. Because listen, the world, the world has an explanation and a way around all the kiddie pool theology. It won't work. It's almost like Jesus would say, Don't tell anyone that. Don't say anything. But when you're walking in pain, in love with Jesus, when you willfully serve those around you in pain for Jesus. I know you were in such a hurry to put your Bibles away. It's okay. But in verse 13, he says, you know, don't get discouraged for my suffering. Because my suffering is for your glory. It's your glory. It's your glory. It's like God saying to us this morning, He's saying, Listen, I know you I know you and your flesh, you want me to do this and this and this and this. And I know that and I understand and I care about that. But I love you so much that I'm not going to deviate from my plan. Which doesn't mean I'm not going to fix it or heal you or change it. But it doesn't mean that I am. It just means that I have a plan that I've always had and I'm sticking to it. Do you know why? Because it's the best plan that there ever was. 
And you see, though the mystery's been revealed, all the details in the mystery haven't. So here's where me and you are as we end this morning. This is where we are this morning, in Christ. I don't know. I don't know why I walk through this or walk through that or why you do or why you don't. I don't know. But this is what I 100% know for sure. That anything that I walk through and anything that you as a child of God walk through, it's for glory. It is for glory. Why did you come to church this morning? Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for revealing the mystery. Thank you, Lord, that although we, many of us in this room are still in the process of discovering, Lord, the riches, the unsearchable riches that we have in you. The fact that of, as we read your word and we, we understand how you have so intentionally and thoroughly gone beyond the call to reveal yourself to us in such a personal and real way. That there's still mystery all around us, Lord. But what's not a mystery is your grace. Lord, help us to swim in the ocean of how you love us. To understand what your love actually means. What actually drove you to that cross. What actually caused you to willingly allow the blood to drain from your veins. We repent for believing that you would shed your blood to shortchange us. No, no, no. Of course, no greater love could be than one who would lay their life down for another. Thank you. God, Invite us this morning into the ocean. Call us away from ourselves and into your glory, Lord. Open the eyes of the blind. Give ears to the deaf. Awaken dead hearts with the good news of who you truly are. We pray this in Jesus' name. The altar is open. I invite you to come. If you want to come, you come. I'm here.